Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Tran and Jim Thompson. Today we're conclude part three of the Eric Larson interview. Dave Johnson started drawing Super Patriot. He'd done seven pages, and it was really limp dick stuff. And I, <laughs> you know, and I had to call him up and just be like, dude, I hired you because I liked what you were doing in your sketchbook. Your sketchbook is awesome. Right. And this stuff is boring. What the hell? <laughs> what are you doing? And he took it to heart. And so, that, yeah, man, sorry about that. I just got this style that I can turn out really quickly, but that's not what you want. It's funny because I was reading some of your letters pages because you're doing letters pages, too, with with your comics, which is pretty cool. And one of them on one of the responding to a fan, I think a fan said, I love Super Patriot. And you said, well, we're coming out with super patriot miniseries and i've seen some art from dave johnson and it's looking awesome <laughs> but it's funny to see hear that but maybe that was when you got the second wave yeah maybe. no it's once he got a fire under his ass there you go he, he performed yeah that's important that fire under the ass is actually a key thing with a lot of artists you kind of would find that you look at through their sketchbooks and you see what they like to draw where their passion lies. I see. And sometimes you can get some out of it like, oh, you really like to do this one thing. And yet when you're doing your regular comics, you're not doing that. And a lot of guys, I think on their own, their stuff tends to be more cartoony and expressive, mm -hmm. but they feel like I've got to do this commercial work and this is my commercial style and it's, and it's very refined. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and it's not necessarily what you do best. And I think with a lot of artists, what they really need is to have that conversation where where somebody just says, no, it's it's okay for you to do the shit that you like to do. Yes. Your natural whatever is better than so many other people. Just uh -huh. do that. Because yeah. there are a lot of guys who do that kind of middle-of-the-road comic book stuff. If we want middle-of-the-road comic book stuff, we got choices, man. But yeah, there's yeah. nobody who's giving me this cool thing. So if you can do that, that would be way better. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So now by 1995, Image was having reliable successes with Savage Dragon, Spawn. The Darkness and Witchblade were also reliably successful. And in that year, USA Network put together two seasons of the Savage Dragon cartoon, right? Yeah. Yeah, so how did that come about? That's interesting to me. We had pitched it to CBS and had gotten a bunch of stuff together for that. And then they ultimately passed on it. And a couple of the guys who were part of it ended up being part of this new pitch to the USA Network. And we just found a different approach. Initially, Mark Evanier was part of it when it was at CBS. Oh, okay. And he had inserted some of his own characters that he had come up with as part of the thing. 
Mm-hmm. And when we went and did it at USA, it was like, no outside characters. <laughs> that, right. That didn't work out so well. And I think Mark's take was a little too divorced from the comic book, I thought. And he kind of introduced a... Remember Steve Lombard in yeah. Superman? He was just kind of Clark Kent's foil. He had kind of introduced a Steve Lombard type character that was uh, going to be in this dragon thing is uh-huh. taking credit for shit the dragon would do and stuff like that. Yeah. And it just, it didn't really work in terms of the book and in the tone of the comic. And ultimately they passed and we just ended up going elsewhere with it. And then how did the USA people like, get on board with it? I don't remember. I don't even remember what that process pitching and then eventually I, just I had, a, said I had yes. an agent at the time i don't remember if i was even in on those pitches Honestly. oh that's funny it's a long time ago and huh? it's just lost to me did you find it to be a positive experience it was positive enough it was nice that it gave it an awareness that it wouldn't have had otherwise uh-huh. and so there were people who will even to this day go yeah i got into dragon Via the The TV show, the cartoon, cartoon, yeah. Because that was my introduction to it. That was great. Did it increase sales for you? No. It didn't have any effect as far as I could tell on sales of the book. But it was a nice little paycheck. So I got a good chunk of dough for that. Right. So that was nice. And then it was kind of a neat process just to go, oh, there's my dude walking around. So you didn't really have much creative influence on the actual cartoon itself then? Not as much as I had thought going into it that I would have. And so there were things where when we were deciding who's going to voice the character, I had something in mind. And then it wasn't that. I picked one guy, they picked another guy. Oh, that's funny. So the voice you felt was off. Yeah, the voice was off. There was a bunch of the story stuff that I wasn't super happy with. Uh-huh. There was a lot of different things here and there just ended up being a problem for some reason or another. It's like, oh, you can't use this kind of character because that's this is a terrible stereotype you've got going on in your comic. We can't have that. When you have a diverse cast in your comic book, you can kind of do those stereotypes as long as you've got something else. There are people who are lazy individuals or who just want to take it easy and cruise with stuff. And it's like those people exist. And for me, it was like, as long as I've got 10 different characters who are a different way, mm-hmm. it's fine to have some character you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's okay to have a little you know, bit of stereotype I, because, in a way, maybe they need representation, too, in a sense. I think the problem with, say, black characters in a lot of shows is uh-huh. that you're going, well, this is the only black character in the show. Right. So when that black character is the only black character in the show, they're representing their entire race. It's yes. like, this is all we have is the one guy. Right. So if you've got just the one guy and he is a lazy guy or he smokes or there's anything about him that's deemed wrong or offensive it just becomes well this is this is a bad thing you're saying this now about every black person right 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 whereas if you're sitting there going i've got a million characters then it's not such a big deal if you look at the cartoon mulan 
Mm-hmm. You can look at that cartoon and go, you know, if there's a couple characters in this show that which isolated are super offensive. Right, right. But That's in the context point. of that show, they're not. Yeah. Because you're not seeing all Asian people look like this one guy. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, because there's heroic, there's this, there's that, there's this. And it's nice to be able to have that kind of variety. And that's something I think ends up getting lost when you've only got one character is you end up going, well, now every single character that's just a single character, they're really bland because they don't want to offend anybody. Right. And so, anyway. So then, that, and that affected what choices they made in the cartoon. You're saying, yeah, there ended up being some choices there where, where they're like, okay, we can't have this character be black because that's offensive. It's like, well, is it fine if it's a white guy who is overweight and lazy? And it's like, oh no, no, it's totally cool. Right. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So we'll make all the white guys lazy and stupid and whatever <laughs> and all the black characters will be awesome which is fine whatever right i see okay and that makes sense too yeah it's testy well, when you're when you're being a creator a you're putting out stuff of, and a bunch of weird things that they kind of come up because it's like well how come alex wilde is colored darker and it's like well because she's mexican well her name's not mexican it's like well she's she's adopted that's kind of a cumbersome backstory can we change her last name to rodriguez there you go like no because <laughs> that's not the character in the comic well then does she have to be mexican well how about can she still be colored as though she's mexican yeah. so it ended up being this weird compromise of she's no longer mexican but she's colored as though she's mexican right how much would she be referring to herself as being Mexican anyway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, people don't really do that. Sure. So what's it matter? Fine. As right. long as she can be colored as though she's Mexican, we'll pretend that she's white. I have no problem with this because it's the way it would be anyway. And they're like, okay, fine. But now we need a Mexican character. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so now that just changes the whole thing. Yeah. And so there ends up being a lot of weird back and forth on um, stupid stuff. And at, and at one point they were really frustrated because they didn't have any positive white characters. Uh-huh. <laughs> we don't have any positive white male characters. <laughs> ended up being a problem. That's like, well, there aren't a lot of positive white male characters in the book and the lead character is green. Right. So what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. That's, it's, it's like it's, you're creating this kind of tentacled web in a way. Now, in 1996, this was kind of fun. So that whole project with Howard the Duck and Steve Gerber and the Savage Dragon crossover. And then it was this kind of interesting thing where you guys ended up having, where there's a crossover with Marvel, where it kind of in a way led to the real Howard the Duck now going over into Image and now he's Leonard the Duck. Like he's kind of undercover. What a fun thing. Tell us about that. Well, initially, the idea was it was just going to be this unofficial crossover, which will make it fun for Steve and fun for me or whatever. And we're just going to do this kind of unofficial thing. Yeah. And then Steve got wind that they were going to be using Howard the Duck over here and he was going to be using over there. And they're going to have all these other writers working on other Howard the Duck things. Mm -hmm. And he became really kind of upset and disillusioned about the whole project entirely. And he was sitting there going, I don't know that I can write 
this story anymore. I just don't like what they're doing. They kind of, at one point, were making it seem like it was my character and they were going to just let me be the only guy doing it. But now they're clearly, that's not the case. They're doing all this other stuff. And so what I talked him into was, well, what if we kidnap him? (laughs) And let's just do a story where we just go out of our way to get him out of Marvel and we'll just do it like that. And then he got re-energized about the whole thing. There you go. So that was your idea. Yeah, that was my idea. And that was just to get him to be able to do it at all. He was going to bail in the middle of it, which would have been bad. I mean, he ended up doing the Marvel story, which he wouldn't have done otherwise. So in a way, it's better for them. But I understand that at one point that might have not worked out so well for some people at Marvel. Yeah. Yeah, So then he became Leonard the (laughs) Duck over at Image. And then that Howard the Duck that's in Marvel essentially is a clone of the original, which I love that because I think most people think Steve Gerber was Howard the Duck in a way. Yeah. Well, he put a uh, lot of himself into his work, and I have not worked with many writers who struggled as much as uh, Steve did. He put hours into that stuff. It shows. It shows mm -hmm. that he really is putting a lot of himself into it. But I just, it just didn't ever, ever occur to me that, oh, writing can be that difficult? Correct. <laughs> because it, would, it always came very easy for me. Yeah. So then, was Steve a nice fella? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a great guy. Because uh, it's cool that you helped him with that, and Jack Kirby helped him with the Destroyer Duck stuff. So it's like another link to Jack you kind of have as far as being in his role, in a sense. Yeah, well, it was the kind of the, the crossover, in a way, happened because he wanted to reintroduce Destroyer Duck. He was writing Strike Force for Mark for a Top Cow book. And he he had introduced this robot thing that was going to open up and it was going to be Destroyer Duck. And Mark was not having it. And I was like, dude, you've got a cartoon cat running around in your in your book. What's the matter? And he's like, well, that's a robot cat. Destroyer Duck is a real duck. And he was just having this <laughs> tough time like, wrapping his brain around this idea of there being a real duck walking around in his universe. So he kind of foisted Steve off on me to see if we could find a way of doing it in my comic. So that was how that kind of came about in the first place. And then Uh. just a lot of these, just the conversations just work out going this way or that and stories come out of it all somehow. Right. That's awesome. In 1999, Martyr left Image, and then Valentino, who was used to publishing his creator-owned comics, formalized Image Central. He became the publisher of Image. Tell us about that transition. My recollection of it was that Todd had some internal stuff going on at his toy company, TMP. Uh And so Larry had been brought aboard as kind of a peacemaker of sorts, but by the time his tenure ended, a lot of the reason he was there was no longer there because Jim Lee had left. Right. And Rob Liefeld had been kicked out. So as a peacemaker, there wasn't really any peace to be made because there wasn't any points of conflict at that point. Uh, I see. And then Todd had points of conflict at TMP 
And so he needed a Larry to come in and negotiate some kind of peace agreement over there. So that became, we need this guy. And then we became, well, we need a publisher. And Valentino was, I kind of would like that gig. Yeah. He, at that point, I think was kind of done making comics. Right. Shadowhawk. He, he always kind of felt like, I think he's, he struggled a lot more as an artist than, than some of the rest of us did. Uh-huh. And I think he was not getting the kind of success making his own comics. I see. And he was kind of like, I, I, I need something. So it's so like, I need this. Yeah. He did love that job. The publisher job. Yeah. Was he a good publisher then? It sounds like he was. He was an interesting publisher in that he made some unusual choices, which I think some worked out pretty well. And then some really didn't. Mm-hmm. So the bad was that a lot of the mainstream guys were less inclined to pitch stuff at image. I actually heard from a few people who said, I just don't want to be turned down by Jim Valentino. <laughs> right. Like, oh, that's kind of a shitty way of putting that, but okay, yeah. I understand. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he brought in a, a lot of his alternative guys. And so right. certainly there was there was some interesting choices being made and he brought in some people that probably would never have come in otherwise and yeah. some of that stuff was there were interesting books so he was turning down some books that could be categorized as more possibly more mainstream no he and wasn't then, and he, then, he wasn't doing he wasn't turning things down because they weren't knocking on the door anymore oh okay i think a lot of people who would have been more mainstream were just kind of like okay image is doing something different now there, oh. there's a place for me there I see. Because of his alternative stuff, he was kind of pushing through. Okay. And the, yeah. And so it was like, well, we got to publish a certain number of books in order to, to make the nut. So let's do that. Oh, that's fascinating. Which, I mean, that goes back to like his normal man. Yeah. yeah. When Liefeld left, you guys had to do that vote and some conflicts were happening. Lee sold Wildstorm to DC Comics. You know, what was your impression of these guys at that point? Were you like, okay, times are changing and people come, people go? Or did you feel like, man, I can't believe this is happening? More the latter. I wasn't happy with how things were going down. I certainly would have preferred that, that we would have all stuck with our guns and stuck with our books and done what we could do. Mm-hmm. But Jim Lee was having problems. He was not finding huge success once things had settled in. At, oh, okay. At uh-huh. You know, his own creator-owned stuff wasn't setting the world on fire. People like Jim Lee on books that they like. They don't mm-hmm. like him necessarily in the abstract. And there are several artists who are like that. When George Perez is on books that people love, people love the shit out of George Perez. When George yeah. Perez is just working on random other stuff, his creator-owned stuff never really did much of anything. Huh. That's interesting. And that's true, though. I never formalized that in my head like that before. Yeah. So same thing was happening with Jim is that he wasn't as into Wildcats as he had other things that he wanted to do. And Wildcats was kind of going with other people. And so he did a I don't remember the name of his book. And Max Faraday was part of it. It had a long title. Yeah. And that was going to be his new creator own thing. And it just nobody wanted it. Oh, wow. It just wasn't wasn't a big book. 
And I think what was was kind of happening with a lot of guys is they were looking around going, I am hip deep in this stuff. I have rented this huge studio space. I've got a lot of people that work for me. And if my books don't sell at a certain level, I can't make payroll. I got guys here. I can't do this shit. Mm-hmm. Whereas on my own, I didn't do any of that. I never had a, a studio that was a physical thing. Mm-hmm. I just worked out of my own house and everybody just worked from their own houses. And yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh-huh. You know, so they would send in, in books and I would publish it and I would coordinate everything, but I, I never had a, a studio. And, and because of that, you know, I also never had a house style as some of the other studios seem to do. I see. Rob's would have a room full of guys who drew like Rob, who were yeah. big fans of Rob. Yeah. And Jim Lee, the same thing, would have a, a bunch of guys who were kind of doing half-house Jim Lee. Yeah. <laughs> so basically by having that low overhead, you had more freedom to just kind of be creative and produce. And that's right. I've heard of the overhead with Liefeld was kind of high at one point, and then with Lee also evidently. So that's an interesting distinction. So it puts more pressure on them. And then now you have Lee maybe not hitting that same point and then yeah. selling to DC and, and Comics. basically he had to sell to DC because he was going to go go away. Yeah. You know, it's like, here, here are our options. I can sell to DC, you know, and then with DC, they were into it because we can get Alan Moore back. Yeah. And we right. wanted to get Alan Moore on stuff, but he wouldn't work for us. So... Part of him making that sale was, I got to go talk to Alan Moore and make sure Alan's going to still do this stuff if it goes to D.C. Right. And then Alan, that became, well, as long as I'm not dealing with anybody there and I'm just dealing with you guys and there's none of this, we'll be fine. Right. I think is how, how that ended up being sold to him was, all right. Yeah, as long as he's isolated, kind of away from the DC stuff, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, I, I love his uh, image stuff. I took some time to read all that six months ago. I, I'm glad I did. He's always a good writer, though. I like all yeah, his stuff. Yeah, he's, he's a talented guy. There's no yeah. two ways around it. Right. All right, Jim, go ahead. Okay, so it's 1998, and obviously there's still stuff going on at Image, but what made you go back to DC and do Aquaman? It became that I hadn't done anything else in a long time. And I kind of felt like people at Marvel and DC may not have remembered who the hell I was because it had been a long time since I'd done anything. And and so my thought was, I'm going to go do some stuff over at Marvel and DC, and then maybe I can get some of those readers to follow me back to image. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you'd been gone for a long time. So for Marvel readers and those fans, you needed to reestablish your name a little bit. That was the thought process going into it. And I had been talking to Chris Iliopoulos, who was my letterer, was also doing stuff over at Marvel in D.C. And we just started talking about, hey, they're looking for a writer on, on Aquaman and what would you do if you were doing Aquaman? And then we just started kicking ideas back and forth. And then it just became, shit, I got too much stuff here that I could do. (laughs) That would be kind of fun. Let's see if they're into it. 
And so pitched it at them and they said, okay. And so that became a thing. Was that fun for you? To an extent it was. I don't always get along very well with editorial. <laughs> oh, I see. Because uh, you're your own editor in a way. So I'm, like... I'm my own editor on, on my own stuff. So I don't have to deal with anybody else's bullshit. Right. But suddenly when you're thrust into a situation where you're having to deal with somebody else's stuff and what they want and what they expect, it can get complicated. That leads to an interesting question for me. Having done this twice earlier, the beginning of your career, and then here in the late 90s into the 2000s, was it different working for Marvel versus DC? And what were the differences? And when you went back in the late 90s and the beginning, had those companies changed a lot? I never found there to be much of a difference between the two mm -hmm. in terms of much of anything. I mean, there were a couple people who worked in a different way that was different from what I was used to in that Mike W. Barr on The Outsiders was writing full scripts, which was not something that I was working with with other people. Other people were writing plot style. Mm -hmm. And I took some liberties with that, which <laughs> I always took liberties. I never even thought this is going to upset people. Right, right. <laughs> but I do shit, and then I find out later, oh, yeah, that really pissed that guy off. Oh, that's like, funny. Oh, well, what do you know? Because, I mean, you're a storyteller and a creator yourself, so yeah. like, how can you not put your own stuff in? <laughs> yeah, it's totally fine. Like, yeah. Mike, when I, he did his Outsiders, and I know this is jumping back, but he wrote a full script, which seemed like he had just written it all out and then just broke it up into panels afterward. Because it was like this whole issue, you got a splash page and then every panel, every page thereafter is all five panel pages. There's none that, then that had more or less. And both of the issues that I had worked with him on, he, he had done that. So it's like one was all five panel pages, next was all six panel pages. And I just thought, as a guy drawing this stuff, we need to open this up when there's, when there's a big villain show up and there's a big reveal, that needs to be a splash page. Mm -hmm. sure. So what I started doing, what I did was I go, all these panels are going to be in here. They're all going to be in the same order. But when there's characters talking or there's small action going on, I'm going to move those to these other pages and open it up so I can have there be a splash of the villains and they can have mm -hmm. there be, you know, when it's a more complicated fight scene, that I can show it better, mm -hmm. which I guess he wasn't super happy about. But. Yeah, but I mean, but your storytelling is effective. It's worked for 30-something years, obviously. <laughs> it's, it's worked out all right. Well, when you went back, though, did you have more clout? Were you able to push a little more because you were far more established than you were back in the outsider days? Not really. Not a lot. I mean, I was writing at this point and I was coming at it as a writer, not as an artist. It was a little different in that regard. Before, when I was just an artist, I w wouldn't have that much back and forth with editors because there just wouldn't need to be any. Right. But now when I was working with, you know, I mean, other than meet your deadlines, that sort of thing. But now it would be like, okay, well, here's your proposal, and you have to write a proposal to get the book, and then it is, all right, now you got to write the stories that are in this thing, and what are you doing here, and where is this going, and all that other kind of stuff. So that's a very different kind of process than draw this. 
Right. <laughs> so was Aquaman, that was the main thing you did at DC over that period, right? Yeah. But at Marvel, around the same time, you, you went over and took over what was probably their biggest character at the, at the time with Wolverine, right? Yeah, but first I pitched Nova. Yeah, no, I was, I was oh, going really? say, but you never yeah. gave up. You, you actually got, Nova to, got to do Nova this, this time. time. They bit. And it was like, all right, well, finally I get to do Nova. <laughs> <laughs> was it as My much fun as you thought it was going to be? It was different because I wasn't drawing it. That in itself created some some different things. And in retrospect, I probably would have been better to have my Wolverine artist do Nova and my Nova artist do Wolverine. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. And, I mean, yeah, it was fun to finally get some of those stories out. And, man, they they tried to promote that thing, but it just did not do super well. Oh. Did Wolverine do well? Wolverine did very well. Yeah. Yeah. But by that point, the editor actually asked me to do Wolverine, whereas with Nova and with Aquaman both, I had to write proposals. But with with Wolverine, it was a situation where I just said to the editor, look, man, I am really tired of writing proposals. So you and I are going to have a conversation here. If at the end of this conversation you want me to do the book, I'll do the book. If not, you know, no harm done. Right. And so we talked through the Wolverine versus Galactus story <laughs> over, over the phone. And at the end of it, it was like I had the book. So, oh, that's cool. So let's let's talk about the Fantastic Four World's Greatest Comics project. How did that come to be? You were a pretty major player in that in that whole series, that 12-issue series, right? And that was from several conversations with several different people, one of them being Bruce Tim, who was somewhat instrumental in that, and with Eric Stevenson, who was also somewhat instrumental. And just, you know, just being fans of the Stan and Jack Fantastic Four. And just coming in and going, how wasn't it? Isn't it a shame that it petered out the way it did? And wouldn't it have been cool if they decided, let's go out in style? Let's just tell the biggest, boldest Fantastic Four story we possibly could on our way out the door. Uh-huh. And know. that had so many artists who obviously were super influenced by. Yeah, the idea was it would suppose we had pitched it as. Let's try to have this be on model Jack Kirby. And that was the idea, because Bruce being from animation, where people have to draw in other people's styles all the time. Right, right. Like, you've got this all the time. Mm-hmm. We've got people that you tried to do, you know? Couldn't we get a bunch of guys to draw like Jack Kirby? Right. And then we managed to get a bunch of guys who could not draw anything like Jack Kirby altogether to do this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, could you, if you really tried to draw just like Jack Bruce? And he goes, well, you know that Avengers one half? And I go, yeah, I was really trying to draw like Jack. It's <laughs> like, Bruce, you suck. And you guys, I know, I know. <laughs> and so we tried and it didn't seem like the memo that we were, what we were trying to do even got out to some of those guys. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, some issues are better than others and some pages are better than others. And we did what we could, but. Yeah. There's some nice page. Uh, Steve Rude did some in the last couple of issues. He's always a great Kirby artist. Yeah, he's always good. Ron Friends sit there and did a bunch of pages with obviously Jack Kirby sitting out on the drawing board while he was doing it. There's a lot of a lot of swipes in there from a lot of people trying their best to make it look like it belonged. And you were doing layouts on some of that. I did layouts on it, and it and I ended up doing layouts in nine of the 12 issues. So I, mm-hmm. I think I got credit for more of them than I actually did. I managed to get really sick over the course of that as I had, oh. I had taken on way, way too much because I was at the same time doing the Defenders at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so between Savage Dragon, the Defenders, and this book, it turns out that that was a little more than I'm capable of doing yeah you felt uh, stretched thin <laughs> that yeah. was the last one i wanted to talk about for this period of your marvel stuff and oh. you wouldn't come back for almost 20 years i guess my initial foray back in there drawing wise was they needed somebody to do an issue of spider woman mm. right john byrne thing John Byrne and I had had words on numerous occasions. <laughs> oh, really? Never, never met the guy. But to say that he was a little jealous of the success of Image Comics is, mm-hmm. to put it mildly. Oh, fascinating. And he, he really felt that Image creators were the worst things to ever happen to comics. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we were all terrible and we were destroying comics. Hmm. And in sort of from that, it just, but I, you know, I was always a big fan of, of John's work growing up. And so it was kind of like, well, this is, this is not cool to find out that somebody who's you're a real fan of just has this huge disliking for you, from my point of view, just kind of out of the blue or in, right, just in, for in the abstract, yeah. you know, this issue of spider girl or spider woman was they needed somebody, and a friend of mine, Andy Smith, who is pals with Bart Sears, had worked with me before, and he knew that I, I could do a comic pretty quick, right. if need be. He talked to his editors and, and, and saw if I could work on that, and so I decided, all right, let me do it. And that was kind of fun, because it was, John wrote full script, but John just broke it down into panels. He didn't break it down into pages at all. Mm. So I could kind of do what I did with Mike Barr, where I would just tell the story however I wanted to tell the story and kept the panels in the right order and and we're good to go. Right, right, right. But something I decided to do in that was to have little caricatures of myself and John Byrne being the best friends ever. (laughs) (laughs) So like... (laughs) In the credits page, it was like me with my arm around John and the little word balloon. They're just visiting folks and and several places (laughs) along the line. When there would be a caption, I would just put both of us in there just clowning around. That's awesome. Just tiny little cartoon versions of us. Uh And that that seemed to be fine. (laughs) I'm sure he was just seething when he saw it. Did you guys ever talk on the phone with each other? No, never did. Okay. Not on that. 
I know at one point I did ask him about participating in the the Fantastic Four thing, but I think mm-hmm. I I asked him via email, and he right, okay, like this doesn't sound like a project that I would be interested in working on. I think mostly because he didn't want to have anything to do with me. I don't know that he would have done a great job, but what I didn't want is for him to be out telling everybody that nobody ever asked. Yeah. 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 That's so a good like, point. Well, I'm going to at least ask right. knowing that there's a really good chance that he's not going to have want to do it. Right. Because from an ego standpoint, you can say, I turned that down. So, yeah, which is fine. And I would rather have him saying, I turned that down than they never asked. Yeah, right. Let's just do the defenders real quick. You know, with something like Nova, I understand how hard it is for that book to make it for whatever reason. But the Defenders seems like a book that just it has some of Marvel's biggest stars. And yet, besides his first run, it's never really had a lot of luck. What did you want to do with it? And how did it work out? I kind of wanted to do what we did, but it didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it just, it didn't sell as well as I would have liked. I eventually had to leave just because I had, you know, had gotten sick and it was like, I can't continue to do this because it's killing me because I was doing too much stuff. And it was like, well, I know I'm not going to quit Savage Dragon. So, I think I need to wrap this up on the Defenders and have this be the end of it. And, was it sad then, for you to do? Because it was a fun book. I mean, I, yeah, I it was, thought it, it was, was very... a fun book. Yeah, there were things I like about it and things that I was less happy with. I, I thought it would be a better book than it was. And there were some things that I didn't think worked out super well. There was some reveal with the Valkyrie that I thought that that story was really convoluted and I didn't as a creator, didn't really follow what it was. But there was a scrambling that had to go on there because the story that we wanted to do ended up being really similar to something that was going on in Thor that Dan Jurgens was already set in motion. So it was like, well, we can't have it that the Enchantress is disguising as one character in Thor the same month that she's disguising as somebody else in The Defenders. So Dan started first. You guys got to come up with a different story. And so we ended up using Lorelei, which just seemed like a little out of the blue. And I don't think it was ended up being as solid a story as it would have been had it been somebody else. So there's a couple little fumbles here and there. But also, I didn't think it was as good as a... Kurt Busick comic, and I don't think it was quite as good as an Eric Larson comic. So in some way, the combination of these two guys just weren't as good as we were on our own. And I'm not really 100% sure of why that was, but somehow it was that way. And So was there a lack of chemistry or a different vision between the two of you? I think there probably was but i can't pinpoint it as to what exactly went wrong but it just it didn't seem to me like it quite worked and then you went back totally to image and was there a reason that you didn't go back to dc or marvel for as long a period almost practically up until just recently no not really 
a lot of it is just people not asking. If they're not knocking on my door, I'm not necessarily knocking on theirs. And that's kind of how that works out sometimes is I don't wasn't really thinking about it. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm not going to work for those guys ever again. It's just I'm doing this other stuff. I seem to be enjoying doing this other stuff. I'm going to continue doing that. Okay. Well, I will be back with Marvel at the very end, but Alex, take us back to Image. Okay. So then Valentino left being a publisher in 2004, and then you you became publisher. So how did that shift come about? Why did Valentino leave, and what made you decide that you wanted to try your hand at being the publisher of the company? Well, I thought that with the books that he was pumping through being less and less kind of mainstream, I thought that something needed to change because we weren't having huge success with these kind of indie books Mm. and something needed to happen and it needed to happen soon. I thought, because it's like we we need to write this boat because this isn't going the way it ought to go. So I was the dick and I actually came in there and said, we need to get rid of this guy. Oh, wow. So it was not a situation where he wanted to leave. He mm-hmm. did not want to leave. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. It wasn't nice, but I think it was necessary. And did you paint your body green and wear a fin when he did that? I might as well have. <laughs> it, was, it was a shitty situation, and yeah. I fully acknowledge that it was a, a shitty situation. Uh-huh. So did that have an effect on your guys' just personal relationship as well? I can't imagine that it didn't, but we were never like super chummy anyway. It wasn't mm-hmm. like we, mm-hmm. we had ever shared a space together or, or worked together super closely. So in a, in a way, it didn't change things. And in another way, it really did. Yeah. Does Valentino still work at Image? Yeah, he still works at Image. He's... he's Publishing stuff now. He's got it. There's a bunch of books that say Shadowline on them. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. His Those imprint. But, right, he's still publishing stuff from people submitting him, basically. Yeah. Through his brand. Basically, he just still doing his indie stuff, but through his own kind of imprint at Image. Mm-hmm, right, rather right. than have the whole company be The that. whole company. Because I kind of wanted to get there to be stronger mainstream stuff. Right, and, for the Image banner. Did he bring in Kirkman or was it you or was it right around in that transition time? It was kind of both. Kirkman wasn't having any success getting anything done and getting anything approved through Jim. What ended up happening is I had him and Corey Walker do a Super Patriot miniseries, which I said, let's just treat this as though it's your own book. I'm not going to take a dime from it. It's just going to be your own book and you do what you do on this thing. And uh-huh. you know, I'm going to approve it and what, what have you, but let's just treat this as it's yours. And that was kind of a proving ground, which led to him eventually doing Invincible. Invincible and Walking Dead. Yeah, I loved his yeah. uh, Marvel Zombies. I thought those were those were fun. So then as publisher then, Oh, and Bomb Queen, that's under Shadowline then, huh? Yeah, that was that was definitely Jim. That's a fun one. So then as publisher, so what were your main duties as publisher, let's say separate from 
the Savage Dragon and Highbrow Entertainment, what were you doing as publisher that was in addition to then what you were doing before as far as like your daily routine and the job and everything? Well, I was going into the image office for one. Uh-huh. And I had a desk there and I was dealing with any correspondence that needed to be dealt with. And I was approving books and trying to recruit other people to come on board and do stuff here and going through the submission heap and picking out creators to do things. And a lot of what I was doing early on was fairly hands-on in terms of books that, that existed in Image already to just go, okay, well, this book isn't doing so well. Maybe you ought to consider doing a different logo. Have you tried this approach? At one point, I was doing some character designs for noble causes that he wanted some different looks for stuff. And I was just doing drawings for characters from that and coming up with logo ideas for that or coming up with suggesting different artists or finding different artists for people to work with on a number of different things. Was it a fun job? Did you like it? It was a fun job and it was kind of fun to be in the office and to deal with other people, you know, because uh-huh. it's like doing comics can be like solitary confinement, you know, and it's nice to suddenly be in a situation where you're suddenly having to interact with other people. Yeah. Know? It's like, what? oh, okay, this is kind of, it's kind of neat. What city is the, are the image offices in? At that point, uh, the image office moved from being in Southern California to being in Berkeley. Okay, so that's close to you. Yeah, and I, at that point, was living in Oakland, which is right next to Berkeley. I see. And so that became the new the new normal, and I became a guy who went to work. Right. That's awesome. As opposed to like kind of doing the work at home all the time. Were yeah. you then doing also Savage Dragon at the Image Office too? Like, were I you just was, combining it? it? Yeah, I was. I was, but it was going really slowly. There was uh, a couple years there that I ended up putting out like just one or two issues a year, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. not what I wanted to be doing. And once the ship was somewhat righted, and we were doing books that were doing better, eventually I got to a point where I was like, I want to get back to doing comics. Yeah. And that was in 2008, right? Where then you're like, okay, I'm I'm ready to retire from this and do (laughs) comics now, right? Yeah, something like that. I don't even know the the years. But yeah, that came about and it was like, all right, let's just Mm -hmm. call it a day. So now I'm going to kind of go over some milestones after that. Then Jim has a couple other last questions. Is in 2015, you worked on Spawn as a writer and penciler with Todd McFarlane co-writing. And he inked the book. And that collaboration went from issues 258 to 266 and ended in a Savage Dragon crossover, right? How was working with Todd on a book like that together? Is he fun to work with? And, and when it works in between image creators like that, then you're basically working as a freelancer under his thing at that point, right? Is that how that yes. kind of worked? Yeah, uh-huh. that is work for hire. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> If we're ranking most miserable times doing comics, that's going to yeah. be high up there. Oh, really? Why? Just because we have a very, very different sensibility as to how to do comics and approaches to doing things. 
And I think we were just kind of not seeing eye to eye on that in any respect. (laughs) That's fascinating. Okay. And there would just be things where he'd decide he was going to move panels around from one page to another. Oh, really? Okay. He was going to, you know, I would write dialogue and then he would rewrite it. And Uh he had a tendency to kind of repeat the same information over and over and over again. And it was just like, what are you doing, man? And Uh he kept wanting to slow everything down. Oh, no, we got to build up to this and take more time. And Todd inked digitally. So I would actually send him inked stuff. You could have printed what I was sending him. Yeah. He would draw on top of it, sometimes using what I did, sometimes straying somewhat. But it was fairly collaborative in that Mm -hmm. regard. But, yeah, it was much more contentious in terms of the, the writing end of it. Yeah. And so I was sitting there just going, ah, oh, man, I hate everything about this. That's funny. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. And just the books would come out and be like, oh, man, uh-huh. I had in mind a much much different comic than this. Yeah, I guess flavor-wise, because Savage Dragon is more like action, there's story, it comes at you at a pretty fast pace. And then I guess Spawn, it's like more of a noirish thing, right? Kind of. Yeah, uh, and he's wanting to do something else, and he wants to build up to stuff. You know, I'm on Savage Dragon, the book's set in real time. So I'm sitting there going, I've got to cover a lot of ground because I'm covering a month worth of, yeah. worth of stuff at any, at any point. A month yeah. is going by, so but, I can't have characters doing nothing this month. They got to get somewhere. Whereas Todd is not in that same mindset at all. He's doing something completely different. Right. That's an interesting contrast there. Then in 2016, 2017, a couple things happened. Inkwell Awards. You got two Inkwell Awards for (laughs) inking your own pencils. You also, in 2017, saw the release of Savage Dragon 225, celebrating 25 years of the Dragon and Image comics in an epic 100-page extravaganza. So when these things are happening, it must be kind of gratifying, right, to see the fruits of your labor over decades. People are celebrating it. How does it feel? Is it a positive feeling, or is it kind of laced with some, well, it wasn't always easy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all of the above. It's never been easy. There's never been a time when making comics has been like, oh, that was a snap. you know it's always this epic struggle of pushing the the rock up the hill time after time after time and it's always like oh i'm amazed that i was able to somehow get this done now i gotta do it again right (laughs) but like everything else you don't really sit there and think of it in terms of i'm gonna sit down and write 200 issues i'm gonna sit there and and draw 200 ish, you know, you yeah. you kind of do it a bit by bit. And then suddenly over time, you look at it and go, oh, this is this huge amount of stuff. Yeah. Had I come into this with the thought process of I'm going to do 300 issues, damn it. That might be more than you could even conceive of, you know, it's yeah. just, it's, it's so overwhelming that because there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. But when you're just doing it, well, I can do a page. Or I'll just do this page. And suddenly, you know, 200 issues passes. That's how that happens. Yeah. So then, and now it's the year 2020, and you'll have published 
250 straight issues of Savage Dragon. I think it's making it the longest-running comic book character from a single writer-artist, right, of all time? There's probably a couple others in there. Dave Sim did an awful lot of... Uh, Cerebus. That's Cerebus. Yeah. Uh, so the 300-issue mark there was kind of one that, that Todd noticed and I noticed and was like, oh, we got to do, do 300 issues. we got to go 300, yeah. And Savage Dragon as a character has grown. How much of you is in the character of Savage Dragon? Because some people, I, I've heard some people say maybe that was like an imaginary friend, imaginary childhood friend of yours <laughs> or something like that. Or it's his id and his superego kind of maximized on, on a volume of 100. Would you say that you are Savage Dragon? Not so much. Mm-hmm. My quips don't come as quickly as they do with him. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have any hesitation, whereas in real life, I would be one of those guys who comes up with the the clever retort on the on the drive home, you know. It's yeah, like, oh, I should say, <laughs> you know. But when you're writing comics, you've yeah. got time to think about that. You don't need That's to have right. that that split second. So there's little pieces here and there where I'll, we'll go. That's kind of something I would say or something I would do, but not really, not a whole lot. Mostly, it's I'm just making up a dude. All right, Jim, go ahead on your thing, and then we'll wrap up. Okay, before I, I get to your current work at Marvel, I do have a form question in relation to Savage Dragon and everything you do, which is, I kind of feel like that people should get, have to get an equivalent to a driver's license before they're allowed to do double-page spreads, because <laughs> so many people don't know how to do it, and they just drive into the ditch, or they abuse the process, and you're really good at it. I say that having looked a lot, and I remember that issue that you did that was nothing but double-page spreads, which is really hard to do. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I will attest to that. So, in your opinion, what is the secret to doing a good double-page spread? What does it need to have in order for it to be worth doing? Well, that's ultimately what it is, is it's got to be worth doing. You've got to pick a, a moment which is visually compelling and visually interesting, and then you've got to fill that space wisely. You can't just have it be a bunch of dead space. It's got to have that moment where you go, oh, wow, cool. And Do you look for multiple dimensions? I mean, does it have to have a foreground, a middle ground, and a background? Yeah, I mean, ideally, yes, but you can do a double-page spread that's just a big face, but you better have a good reason story-wise for that and it better be a nice looking face right that you face know? better be good if it's two pages yeah well, it's like if we're pulled in on something why are we pulled in on it and why shouldn't this be one of many panels on another page mm-hmm. why is this worth the space that you have devoted to it and that's what you do is you try to find the answer to that question you know and did you look at other people's work in in terms of mastering that particular concept like looking at how kirby did it or how steranko did it or people different people jack's really good at it steranko is really good at it few others are okay walt's pretty good at it and then it drops off from there Mm -hmm. because some people just can't do it at all and it's just a mess i think tim (laughs) sale knows how to do a double page spread there's a few people 
Well, you're making good use of that space. And I think that's it, is you're, you're not drawing a small panel bigger. You're putting more information in there. And that's why it's a double-page spread. It, it's a double-page spread because it needs to be that. That's great. That was the question I most wanted to ask you, because I, I think you're really good at it, like I said. So now let's go back to the current stuff you did. You've got a Captain America, the end book coming out now, which is already... It's, it's into just a- one issue. That's all that is. It's It's a one shot. I want to segue that into what you think of social media as a creator, because I saw the dumbest things posted about that because of the credits where it said created by Stanley and and Jack Kirby. And people were writing things like, well, this is probably Larson's doing it. And it's like, no, it's not some plot by you. No, well, that's the only page in the book that I had nothing to do with. Right. Right. Of course. I didn't place the ads either. Sorry if that offended anybody. (laughs) So do you ever get tired of fandom in terms of that kind of jumping to ridiculous conclusions? Sure. But what can you do? There's a certain number of things that are within my power, and there's a bunch of things that aren't, and that's, that's one of them. Ultimately, when there are things like that, that can lead back to, I'm not doing this again. I prefer to be in a situation where I'm, I'm in control. And that always ends up, whenever I stray, I always end up coming back to doing stuff at Image and going, oh, thank God. Right. Back to the normal world, yes. Is there some other stuff still to come from Marvel? You also did a Spider-Man something as well. Are there other things that are coming out from your little bit of assignment, Marvel assignment stuff? Nothing that's been announced Anything yeah. super exciting that, that uh, we're not going to hear about? I'm actually not sure at this point. There's some talk on stuff. I'm not sure if I'm going to end up doing it just because just because of the way things are. I'm not pissed at anybody or, or anything like that, but it's just so much easier and more fun to do this shit on my own than it right. is to suddenly be working with other people in, in these other constraints and some of it is really basic stuff things that just drive me up the goddamn wall i don't even know that other people even notice but it's definitely things that that i notice and it just drives me crazy because you have something to compare it against right whereas a lot of these people like they don't know any different yeah when i do this on my own this turns out like this and when i do it with somebody else this turns out like this what the hell happened that's right. That's what happens like when you have your own business and then then if you were to like work in some big corporation where you're kind of in that cog, I totally get that. Last question. Do you have a finished date in mind? And do you have a last story for, for Savage know. Dragon? <laughs> nope. And nope. So you don't know how it's gonna end. Nope. Because oh, that's awesome. Because it keeps changing. Right. Characters keep getting older. Mm-hmm. Life keeps going on. You know, it's like I'm, I've got places where I want to get, but it's kind of like life. <laughs> you sit there and you go, well, I know where I want to be in, in five years, but you're not necessarily sitting there going, well, how's my facial hair going to be at that point? You know, yeah. you don't necessarily have all the, all the little stuff figured out. 
but you might have the broad things like I want to be married in five years. Right, uh, right, I right. I got to work towards that because I'm getting old. You know, I think all of us have these kind of just little little life goals, and a lot of the characters have their life goals they want to go and their places they want to be. But it's like, how do I know that I don't get sick two years from now? And then I'm not sitting there going, well, I've got to wrap it up now. Right. So yeah, my last issue is not going to be the last issue that my last issue would have been if I knew that there was going to be more time. Right. For sure. You know, that's interesting. <laughs> that's a good yeah. way. I mean, that's existentially. That's an interesting observation. Sort of the opposite of Dave Sim, where he knew it was going to be 300 for a long time, and it was always going to be 300. Yeah. I'd like to do more than 300. I'd like to be able to go. I want to do the kind of run where you just go, all right, maybe I'll do the second longest run. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. what I mean. Where you, uh-huh. where you look at it, and it's just like, what the hell? He did 500 issues? That's, that's insane. Who would sit down and do 500 issues? But I don't also want to set that out as a goal either, because it's like if I'm sitting there three years from now going, ah, I want to be able to leave it at any at any point. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Eric, we really enjoyed today's podcast. And something I want to say is there's a thing about the comic book auteur, the writer artist. You know, you have people like Kirby, you have Simonson, Chaikin, and Byrne is a writer artist. For certain, you're in that category where you're creating and writing and drawing and a true storyteller. And, you know, it's also the nut and bolts of running a business. You really bring an interesting West Coast perspective on comics. (laughs) And I really like it because that's kind of in my mind and in, in comic as a fan that's where i came from jim and i are just really excited that you're able to spend some time with us today thank you so much all right for Thanks. all the time this was a long one and we really appreciate it <laughs> so this has been another episode of comic book historians with alex grant and jim thompson with very special guest eric larson cheers eric and excited for the next issue of savage dragon <laughs> as am i <laughs> <laughs>